In the Kol Nidre service, which begins Yom Kippur, we ask that all vows we make in the coming year be declared null and void so that we have no opportunity to break them. Well, I hereby nullify any promise I will ever make that there's no swearing on this show. Consider that your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by senior writer Liel Libowitz. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. I'm sorry. <laughs> I won't even ask for what. Let's just get it out there. I'm sorry. Just for everything. This week for Yom Kippur, it's our fourth annual apology episode. We have a beautiful, moving, insightful, extraordinary lineup for you this week all about apology and atonement. You know, when we first did a Yom Kippur apology episode, when we were just a baby infant podcast. uh, We had nothing to apologize for. We had nothing to apologize for. Except for being like a bad podcast. <laughs> which we would like to apologize for. We're trying. We're trying our best to get better, but it really took off. We. We. I think it was our episode in some ways that really broke out. Um, that really broke out first and brought us a lot of new listeners and a lot of people sharing it with other people because I think it's not only it's not only Jews who are interested in the question of how do we become better people. All of us ideally are. This year, three segments. Hal Carp tells the story of how he goaded his brother into a fight and got him arrested, and how he ultimately repaired that our relationship. Plus, our producer Noah Levinson checks in with Gentile of the Week Quay Stewart, the Yonkers resident who is still trying to figure out how best to apologize to the Jewish community for the way that he mocked a little Hasidic boy's haircut in a video that went viral earlier this year. And we will talk about the year in apologies with our tablet colleague Marjorie Ingle, who tracks the best and worst apologies on her website, sorrywatch.com. So a really wonderful show, one that hopefully will get you in the mood as we are here in the middle of the High Holy Days. But Liel and Stephanie, in this year with a lot of public apologies, I got to ask, how are you guys doing? What are your feelings about all of this? Liel, as we continue through the days of awe, what are you thinking about this culture of apology in which we live? I got to tell you, I'm done with apologies. You know, I think we've hit some sort of real cultural watermark that is just preposterous. Everyone is apologizing. Everyone is constantly demanding apologies. Everyone is constantly saying sorry. Here's the one thing that I really don't see enough of. I don't see enough people actually doing shit, you know, actually doing the work of the shuva, meaning, you know, return, repentance, becoming better people. You have these celebrities behaving horrendously, right? And and here's the thing. If you're, say, let's take a completely hypothetical example. Let's, let's say you're a, a comedian named Muis we gay uh, who uh, who may or may not have shown his penis uh, to un- unwilling people. You I know mean, he did. He admitted to doing how, it. How easy? So let's say he did do it. Who yeah. who did you know? Admittedly, show his penis to uh, un- unwitting uh, people. How easy is it for you, at the very least, to say you know what? I've like. 10, 15 million dollars like lying around the house. Here's some money for a really, really good cause or even better. You know, here's what I'm going to do in this coming year. I'm not going to plan my comeback special. I'm going to take time and volunteer for an actual organization that does the kind of work that I clearly need to do on myself. No one does the work. Everyone's just like, you need to apologize. I apologize. We do not accept your apology. It's like a circle of, of stupidity. And here's the other thing. Like no one actually accepts the apology. So people throw their apologies into this black hole on the internet. It's all just very frustrating. So you feel like someone who, like a lot of, obviously 2018 was in some ways the year of people, I would I want to say men, but people behaving badly. And so like, do you feel like there are apologies 
just thrown out there and then like not no one's acting on them. Yeah, like, I, that feel, actually, I feel like it's, it's not. A, it's an apology plus. I feel it's been a year of, of maliciously demanding apology, emptily apologizing, and no one actually following through. The offenders failing to follow through and becoming better people, and the those demanding the apology failing to follow through and actually saying, you well, know, what are some, you doing to change? Some of you actually no, but actually some of you did do good work, and like, okay, welcome back. It's it's nice to have you. It's good that you recognized that you did something bad. Liel, I couldn't agree more. And I I am constantly amazed by, and let's take just celebrities, although of course most people aren't celebrities and most apologies that are given are not given by celebrities or rich people. But I am amazed by wealthy, famous people who don't make what would seem to be the fairly simple choice of just taking some time away from their money earning and doing good works. Now, the good works could be, yeah, like you say, you know, volunteering for some organization that needs you, right? And and not to pick on Louis C.K. alone, right? Because, uh, you know, there are there are worse people, in fact. I mean, right, we could be talking about Harvey Weinstein. But let's talk about Louis C.K. Let's say he was stuffing envelopes for a, a local women's shelter. Just doing something with his time. And then, of course, what we need from Louis C.K. more than time is, you know, his money. What, we, what rich people really... What we need from them that they have is a lot of money. And maybe he had supported a women's shelter or three or five or endowed them forever. I mean, when you have tens of millions of dollars, you can do that. And if a rich person said, I really feel terrible and I'm trying to think of how to give back and I want people to know I'm worth about $50 million and I'm not going to put myself in poverty. I'm not a saint, but I'm going to take 47 of the $50 million and endow 10 women's shelters or something that's really substantial, but they don't. They never do that, actually. I feel a little cynical, but if Louis C.K. was like, I'm giving a bunch of money to a bunch of great places, I'd be like, okay, Louis, but how are you changing? Mm, if he were giving away like, 95% of his money, well, I think, yeah, that would I be think so unprecedented. More likely what it would be would be like a $10,000, $20,000 donation one time. Like, And I right. think that that is helpful, but I also think like we're we're a little bit disillusioned by by that and like just throwing money at a problem. I don't think we'll solve it. I right. think it will definitely be useful to the organizations that need it. But there's a way in which I'm much more moved by the like going to a shelter and stuffing envelopes thing or like going to a food bank or like just. But then the problem with that is the way celebrity works now. Then there's a picture. This TMZ gets a picture and it's like, did Louis just do this to get a photo op? So he appears to be on the men. Like there's so many levels of, of artifice that's, and, and that's reality. The no, no, there's no system geared toward accepting yeah. the apology. Yeah. Which is horrendous because at that point, like why, why even bother with the apology to begin with? But, Wait, part of the question, too, I really want to linger for a moment on the whole thing of volunteering versus giving money. Volunteering is great, but actually it's a lot easier to volunteer for, for very rich people. It's actually a lot easier to say, even, let's say six months of hard labor at, at some sort of volunteer work. That's actually a smaller ask of them than giving away their fortune. And so if what they really want to do is show atonement, if what they really want to do is show, I know that I hurt people and now I have to suffer a little pain in return in a way that will do good, but I have to give till it hurts. It's not time. Celebrities have all, have nothing but time. I mean, they're, 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 you know, getting facials most of the time. They have a lot of time, but <laughs> they're never willing of, to- of the what, modern day celebrity. <laughs> they do nothing. Literally, you can almost never find a celebrity who has voluntarily returned to middle-class status financially. They, that is unthinkable to them. And and so I don't know. I, it's amazing to me that they're that their PR people never. I mean, imagine if Harvey Weinstein, right, the worst of the worst in the past year, if he had said, "I'm giving away all my money. I'm gonna gonna go get a job for seventy thousand dollars a year, or forty thousand, or whatever, and live like that." Who's gonna a hire lot of people, him? A lot I'm gonna of people work actually at an would Arby's, have been like, which is what? a perfect job for me. 
<laughs> so let's talk about regular people though, because like regular people can't throw money at it, can't do a flashy apology. Like how do how do we mere mortals apologize? I mean, what is this this holiday is sort of designed for to be a point at which Jews reflect. I was hoping right? you would tell us, Stephanie. You gotta go and get angry at all of my honesty. You know I try, but I don't do too well with apologies. We have with us our senior apology correspondent, Marjorie Ingalls. She's a columnist at Tablet Magazine and co-runs the blog Sorry Watch, which analyzes apologies in the news. Welcome, Marjorie. Thank you for having me, podcast people. (laughs) It's nice because we see you in the office, but to get you in the studio is a special treat. It's very exciting here. It's a whole new Marjorie, I feel. (laughs) Before we get started, like, do we have anything we need to apologize for? Yeah, are we good, Marjorie? Are we good in your book? I think we're all okay. Yeah, look at me. I'm looking right. Oh, yeah, you. Tell, tell you. <laughs> but, you know, we can disagree and still be civil to each other, even though you are the devil. Look at that. <laughs> so, Marjorie, like, what's been going on in the year of apologies? So, one of the most recent lousy apologies that, I, that comes to mind is the bishop who officiated at Aretha Franklin's funeral, Charles H. Ellis III, who groped Ariana Grande. Do we know what we're talking about? What? Oh, yes, we did. Oh, I saw that. Mark, did, you see the picture? did you hear about this while your wife was giving oh, birth? I <laughs> I got this in right under the wire. He was, for those who haven't seen it, he was putting his arm around her the way you'd put your stand next to someone and put your arm around their shoulders. And then he the hand reached under her far uh, armpit and, and got cuppage of her of her right breast. Visible cuppage. <gasps> Visible coupage. His, the tips of his fingers were practically white. He was pressing in so hard. Uh, yeah. And you could see from her body language that she was not delighted. And with watching this. from the bleachers, Louis Farrakhan was like, right on, brother. <laughs> oh, I have a picture. I pulled up a picture. It's very <laughs> disturbing. It's gross. And he kept kind of wiggling them around where they weren't like staying still. Either. But it's like it was there was no sense in that no one was seeing this. Like he knew he was on. He was not only in a big room of people. There were bajillions of people watching online. Yes, correct. And I guess on the news. Like, let me spell this out for you. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, no? <laughs> Too soon? Not Pretty soon funny. So what was wrong with the apology that the bishop gave afterwards? Okay, so first, he actually had two things to apologize for, because before she spoke, before she sang at the funeral, he made a joke about how he saw Ariana Grande on the funeral menu and thought she was a new item at Taco Bell. Um, so <laughs> oh that's God. problematic. And then, then the gropage, and he's the apology was, it would never be my intention to touch any woman's breast. I don't know. I guess I put my arm around her. Maybe I crossed the border. Maybe I was too f- friendly or familiar. But again, I apologize. I hug all the female artists and the male artists. That's what we're all about in the church. We are all about love. Uh, and then he said, I personally apologize to Ariana and her fans and the whole Hispanic community. When you're doing a program for nine hours, you try to keep it lively. You try to insert some jokes here and there. And I bet you guys can tell me everything that is wrong with that apology. You don't need to be the special ap- apology correspondent to see everything wrong with that. Well, I do know that Ariana Grande is not Hispanic. That is true. She is Italian. <laughs> but the fact that she's not actually you know, Latina and that she is Italian does not mean that you get to insult, you know. Oh, of Taco course. Bell. Yeah. I mean, that yeah, 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 yeah. was a glaring error. Yes. Right. Well, that, I mean, the genius of it is that he offended, like he doubled down on the offense. He made it worse. He, he like Latino and Latinas are still offended. And now Italians and Latinos are offended because apparently he thinks they're the same thing. It's like it, it, it just 
I also wondered about the phrasing, maybe I crossed the border. Because isn't that, that feels like a Taco Bell reference again. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, Marjorie, that's that's some deep apology scholarship there. Like, I don't think the three of us would have would have made, Thank you. taken note of that years, as well. But that's because- years of being in the apology you're trenches. You're a pro. So, so this is actually a great apology on which to talk about how he failed all five prongs of the Sorry Watch five prong test for a good <laughs> apology. Yes. So what are the prongs? The prongs are- uh, you actually say, I'm sorry, or I apologize, which he did say. So I guess he didn't fail all of them. Uh, okay. You have to state the thing that you did and the fact that it was like my intention. And he mentioned it would never be my intention to touch any woman's breast. So that's not really stating the thing that you did, which was touch a woman's breast. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't acknowledge the impact of what he did, which is another thing you have to say. You have to make it clear that you know exactly why what you did was wrong. Clearly, he's not taking responsibility to not not taking ownership. And there's no attempt to make things right, uh, either on a micro or a macro level. Uh, my guess is that he did not personally apologize to her, uh, which is a thing you have to do in public apologies is also make sure that you've done it. You know, you've done your teshuva. And private. privately as before you go out there and start to the pon- person you've actually hurt. Yes. Before you start, go out in public and start pontificating about how you've been misunderstood. To the person <laughs> whose breast you cupped. Correct. In public. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's sounds, sounds sensible. It's all the things that are wrong, except for he actually used the words, I apologize, but not for the thing that he actually did. If he crossed the border for crossing the border, for crossing the border. Wasn't that like it was like the slogan, wasn't it like run for the border or something like that? (laughs) Yeah, make a run for the border. Yeah. Yeah. That was there. That was the Taco Bell slogan. Yes. So (laughs) maybe it was subconscious, but I feel like it's entirely possible that it wasn't and it was actually being passive aggressive, continuing to be. That's why you're the pro. I am. So what else in the year of apologies is, is noteworthy, Again, when Marjorie? you're at a funeral with Louis Farrakhan, and Louis Farrakhan isn't the most <laughs> offensive person at the funeral, <laughs> that's amazing. So what else? What else has been going on? Some other goods and bads? Some other goods and bads. Should we, should we alternate between goods no, and bads? No, give us another really bad you one. You like I'm the bad mood. ones. Yeah. Okay. Because I think we'll appreciate a good one that much more. Right. Uh, here's a quickie. This is a one-line one about... Uh, an Atlanta woman with multiple sclerosis who flew on Delta Airlines uh, to Amsterdam and they didn't have the right kind of wheelchair for her, which is a kind that sort of tilts backwards and has uh, strap bu- buckles and straps. So they tried to put her in a regular wheelchair and tied her to the wheelchair <laughs> with dirty blankets from oh. the flight. Oh. And... Uh, she ended up with bruises, um, and uh, she was crying the whole time, and they did it anyway. And um, the apology was, we regret the perception our service has left on these customers. How <laughs> 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 about we regret the bruises that we have left on these customers? We regret there was not enough room in the overhead compartment where we wanted to place this passenger <laughs> exactly. to begin with. So, like, in the annals of corporate apologies, like, they're particularly bad sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean... Th- uh, I don't know what it is about airlines that there have been a zillion horrible, you know, I was, I mean, we fly Delta, well, so the, I was kind of hoping they'd the escape fact, it. The fact that they hate us, <laughs> right. the fact that they, it's their not, mission is to make us suffer. It's clearly not. Well, a you know, we can take this to the top because uh, a, a few months ago we had on the couple who had the Delta themed wedding uh, that, you know, for whom their Delta fandom was the, the cementing factor of their marriage, the, the Jewish couple. So we can, we'll get in touch with them and ask them to. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they have the special, the special hotline directly. To they the owe us an apology of, now, of, too. Of well, the we had Alaska where they moved 
the gay couple out of the seats that they had paid for in first class to seat a married heterosexual <gasps> couple. Um, Seriously? Yeah. That's disgusting. Oh my God. <laughs> and then what else was there? The United one where they dragged that older man yeah. through the aisle that was with his so face bad. bleeding. Yeah. So what should an airline say? Like, wh- what's a good way for a company to just own a responsibility? Okay, well, first of all, apologies are not panaceas. You can't fix everything with an apology. The best thing to do is for a thing, A, not to have happened in the first place, and B, for we, we need to... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Please don't drag people bleeding do down. Don't tie people to a chair. Just fly us from A to B. Now, if you right? can't do that... Exactly. If you can't do that, you say the thing you did. You know, you say, uh, we're not, we're sorry for the perception. You say, we're sorry we tied her to a chair. And you have to say the thing that you did. Could they in say, the like, apology. we're sorry we treated, sorry we treated a passenger in a way that was not, like, can you say it? Can you sort well, of. It's, you have to be very careful not to steer into this is not who we are because it is who you are. It's you exactly did it. Apparently, it is who they are, right? Um, hey, Marjorie, I have a question for you. So, the corporate apologies are, by their very nature, if we know about them, public apologies. They're, they're press releases that corporations put out there or, or tweets. I'm always curious, why does the corporation have to apologize? They didn't do anything wrong to me in this case. Like the person who was wronged was the woman with multiple sclerosis. And if in fact they did Teshuva by getting in touch with her and saying, we're so sorry we did this, what can we do to make it right? Which our tradition teaches is, you know, that, that true, the true humility often is invisible, right? That, that, that the greatest Lamed Vavnik, the most righteous person might be someone who doesn't in any way advertise the good things they do. Why should they have to apologize to, to like seven billion people, all but one or say five or ten of whom, maybe the person's family or people who were traumatized in the immediate vicinity or whatever, were not wronged by this? You know, we do live in a time of public shaming, and it is in part a PR exercise. But I think it's also important to remember that there are other flyers who have disabilities, and they want they've read this and they want to be sure that they are not treated like that if they fly this airline. There are families of people with disabilities and there are people who vote with their pocketbooks and want to support ethical companies. And, uh, you know, you want to know that somebody not only feels bad for a thing that they did, but is going to part of a good apology that I don't know that we quite, um, we quite got to is uh, how are you going to make amends to the person that you wronged, and in the Delta case, it was like, here are 20,000 sky miles, which they did not want. For this airline, and, you were never flying again. Yes. You know, how are you going to make amends personally, and how are you going to make sure this doesn't happen again, which we haven't heard uh-huh. of. Um, so one of the apologies that I thought was great was, do you remember at Smith College, um, so an employee called the cop, the campus cops on a black woman who was resting in... Uh, outside the dining hall on a couch, and they, she said she seems out of place. Oh my! God. And uh, you know, wait, something very similar happened at Yale. Did this happen at Smith as well? Yes, it oh did. My God. <laughs> well, they actually they both were quote sitting down, laying down in the living room area. Yeah, uh, it was resting while black. Yale was Yale. someone yeah. sleeping in the library, or someone in the library sleeping in the library. I f- who yeah. among us hasn't? Yeah, how, how, <laughs> exactly. how dare they? That's college. <laughs> Sleep in the library. So I don't know what he's doing in there, just laying on the couch, and he was a she. But um, Smith was so transparent in how they handled it. They first they did reach out to the person privately, 
but they also have a web page on which they are constantly updating how they are handling it. Um, they immediately put the employee on leave pending an outcome of an external investigation, which is being done by two independent civil rights attorneys. Um, they are expand like a lot of people are do get you know bias training, but not everyone. And the, they won't release the name of the person who did this, which I think is wise. But uh, they are expanding bias training for the school. Uh, they've been updating on the website how everything is going and, you know, the lists of who to contact if you, you know, experience bias at Smith. And I thought that it was really well handled, you know, and people are going to be furious at you no matter what you do. So I think a lot of this, you know, tying into the Jewish stuff, you know when you did the right thing and the wrong thing. And you can't get forgiveness is never a guarantee. Okay, so here's you still have to apologize. Here's a question though, yes. about, about forgiveness. I feel like our scholarship of apologies has gotten really good, right? You have the five prongs, you know exactly what's going on. Where do we stand on kind of gauging how and when we are able to forgive? Like, at what point do we say, okay, well, you know what, Smith, you've done this thing, you're good, like, we're back in a normal scheme of things, and, and as opposed to Delta, say. Right. How, how do we determine that it's... Well, it's we know again. the Maimonides thing. Maimonides says that you have to, you know, after three apologies, if you're not forgiven, the sin is now on the other guy. But I was actually just talking to um, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg about this, and she said that that is Maimonides' interpretation of a bit of uh, Talmudic text. And it doesn't say the sin is on the other guy. It doesn't say anything other than you have to try to apologize three times. So... You know, she was saying she takes that into nobody is owed forgiveness, you know, and which is a thing that, you know, me and my, you know, lack of Jew Jewish textual knowledge still said on the site is like nobody owes you forgiveness, but you owe apologies. That said, we all get to make our own decisions about, you know, when somebody is simply holding a grudge, you know, to go to, to Buddha, you know, the thing about when you're still holding a hot coal hoping the other person is going to get burned. Like that's what an apology, you know, failing to be able to let go. But sometimes, you know, in the case of trauma and abuse, you know, why should you have to let go? You don't have to forgive no matter what they right, say. Right, but I feel there's a lot of stress culturally, societally on the apology faction and not actually a lot of conversation. Forget, you know, public kind of demand for, hey, you know, just be decent. If it's not something, you know, hugely egregious, like tying a person down with 30 blankets, you know, just be like, okay, well, you know, I understand if why you, you did this. I'm you know, if forgiving. people act in good faith, if they really are trying and we're still finding fault with they're not 100% there, um, I do feel like we have to learn to be a little charitable when people are trying to be educated. Times are changing so fast. Definitions of what is, uh, what, you know, language is changing so fast. Um that I think we ought to offer a little patience and kindness when people are just, people are trying. Do you feel like social media is making that impossible? Uh, I feel like it's making it pretty freaking hard. But, you know, for me, it's not just, um, th there's, there are two reasons that I think, there are two ways to look at forgiveness, right? One is, is it something you owe the other person? And I, th I think you're probably right that, um, no, you know, that it, it's never my place to say to someone who's been wronged, whether by me or someone else, okay, it's time for you to forgive. It's your job, right? On the other hand, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to my kids, I'll tell them that like, you know, anger makes people miserable. 
and holding on to, you know, and not forgiving other people only hurts yourself. And that it's, that it's, um, you know, it's not necessarily virtuous to forgive. I'm not going to make it a, a moral quality because, you know, justice is a complicated thing and, and every case is different, but it's healthy to forgive, right? Like, I don't, you know, like, I mean, a, I think, I mean, if I want people to be happy. Often you are right. Like, again, I'm now I'm thinking of that time story recently about um, Lisa Brennan Jobs, Steve Jobs's daughter. And yeah. he was yeah. absolutely monstrous to her. Right. And she is determined to forgive him. And everything that she says that she has forgiven him for, it, you know, it was this stack upon stack of, oh, my God, he's horrible. Um, but, you know, and, and I think, I, you know, obviously the writer doesn't write the headline. But the thing about uh, she's forgiven her father. Do we have to? No, we don't have to. But we also well, except wait, wait, except wait, he didn't wrong us. Let me finish. Yes, he did. That bullshit home button on the iPhone that doesn't even really <laughs> press. That's a sin against humanity. We do not have to forgive him. But we also don't have the right to tell her, the person who was wronged, that she is being, you know, gaslighted or yeah. or, or that know. her feelings or her forgiveness, her forgiveness isn't authentic or right. is wrong. Right. Like, it's it's none of our business. Though she did write a memoir about it that she wants to sell to people. So there's like, you know, of course. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever feel like it's just too much? Like so much apology, so much so many demands for apology, so much of the conversation about apology. Do you ever just want to say like, you know what, I'm I'm out. I'm out of the sorry game. It's why we are constantly seeking good apologies. People love to send us all these horrible, horrible apologies. And we don't, we don't, we, you know, we say thank you, but we don't tackle most of them because it's just, we, we don't want to be this endless fire hose of snark. You know, we want to be able to praise good apologies because they are part of the social glue that keeps us you know, together and functioning as a society. And, and that's we how we think, learn, right? Yeah, to we want to think that everybody is educable. And like when there's a good apology, you know, it it makes everybody feel good. It makes you feel good to hear about it. Um, and it makes the recipient feel good. I feel like you need to apologize for using the word educable. I know, I really but, like that word. But I've never I've, heard that before. Would, would you take us away? I'm sorry, with, I've never with, heard that before. With one good apology. I will one take great you apology. away with one great apology. Uh, back in April, a Texas charter school... Uh, a teacher there gave an assignment to the to the eighth grade American history class where it was, please list the positive and negative aspects of slavery. <laughs> uh, one of the kids brought home their assignment and was like, mom. And the, the parent called the headmaster of the school. And the teacher was, first, the teacher was placed on leave. Uh, the superintendent, who I've decided is a Jew, even though... Probably not. Aaron Kindle. Kindle. We'll take him. Yeah, right? Well, it depends. What yeah. did he do? Yeah. Um, okay. So he released a statement. For, he, you know, he sent a letter to the parents and also released it on Facebook. So it was personal as well as public. Um, it named the offense. It took responsibility. It acknowledged the hurt caused. And it took prompt action. They t not only removed the teacher from the classroom, they removed the textbook from the classroom to make sure that it wasn't coming from the textbook. And... He also made, I mean, it sounds like you sh this should be obvious, but he made the statement, there is no debate about slavery. It is immoral and a crime against humanity. And they also had a meeting with students to discuss why it was problematic. They had a meeting with parents. And they, again, in the apology and in the letter, uh, they published the contact info of all the people you could call and talk to. And you can't really ask for more than that. And I don't know what... You know, and yes, I'm sure there are people on you know social media raging for people's heads to roll, and everyone should whatever. Everybody should be beaten. 
Um, but, you know, look, that was a good apology. And it, it's a uh, learning opportunity for the students to yes. actually say, like, this is a bad. Th- I mean, first of all, they learned what it's like to be which, when you're when the people who are supposed to be in charge of you apologize and do wrong. So that seems like a useful thing. Not that this was a good thing that happened, but like the fact that then they started talking about all this stuff. I think you actually probably learn more about what is important. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good point. I, and I'm reminded there's this children's book. Uh, by Mem, the late Mem Fox called Harriet, You'll Drive Me Wild. And it's a picture book. It's a little kid picture book. And it's about this kid just being brattier and brattier and brattier, sometimes on purpose and sometimes by accident. And the mom finally, the mom just loses her shit. And then the mom apologizes. And I think that is so important for kids to know that we are all flawed people. Your parents are flawed people. And when you screw up, you apologize, you know, bluster. And you don't say, because I'm the parent, that's why. And, you know, oh. <laughs> Liel is smirking at me because he says because I'm the parent that's no, why. but I like this because like I feel like kids get really stressed out when they do something wrong. But this idea that like you do you we all do bad things, we all mess up, and like you can apologize and then it's it, it's done, right? Like you right. can move on, right? And you know I think it's a great opportunity also to teach kids not to use sorry but, you know sorry but my little brother was provoking me. Sorry, but you didn't tell me that. Marjorie, we're sorry, but. We have to wrap this up. Fine. Mar- <laughs> Mar- Marjorie Ingle, thank you so much for being here. You can check out sorrywatch.com. You can find Marjorie on Tablet Mag and on the social media. And in the East Village. And you can read her very sage book, Mamala Knows Best. Yep. Thank you. And we are working on a Sorry Watch book as well. Wow. Yes. Um, thank you, guys. Happy 5779. Happy 5779. That's the amount of apologies that will have to be made publicly this coming year. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. A few months ago, we got a letter from listener Hal Karp about how an apology he made to his brother saved a relationship between them that had once seemed unsalvageable. Here's Hal in Dallas, Texas. In 1992, My brother John and I, both in our mid to late 20s, found each other in need of a place to live. Let's get a place together, John suggested one day. Wow, I thought, this sounds like a sitcom. Hip and cool Jewish brothers living together. I imagined wild parties, hot girls, lots of laughs. What a great idea, I responded, taking him up on the offer. This will be perfect. But it wasn't. Because I had a secret. I was an active alcoholic and a drug addict. And I was entering what would become the stage of my addiction where things really went downhill fast. I showed up late to work, if at all. When I did make an appearance, I was an arrogant ass. 
With the little money I made, I had my priorities, drugs and alcohol first, then everything else. Rent and utilities, those were in the everything else list. Hal, I need your share of the rent, John would say, at first, matter-of-factly. I'm waiting on getting paid for my overtime, I'd reply. I always had excuses, which were really lies. And when those ran out, I'd give John a check that would bounce. There must have been a mistake at the bank, I'd say. John was far from stupid, though. My secret was becoming apparent. The plethora of beer cans, the days I never left for work, the school nights I stayed out way too late. But I was John's brother. And John was and is a true mensch. And so he gave me more chances than I deserved. But everyone has a breaking point. After three months of never paying rent, handing him bad checks, and turning our apartment into a sty, I asked John to please return some power tools I'd loaned him. They were in the back of his car. Why do you want them? He asked. That's none of your business, I said. I was actually planning on pawning them, not for rent money, but for cocaine. When you pay me something, anything, you can have the tools, John said, glaring at me. I snatched his car keys and bolted out the door. Dashing to the parking lot, I popped the hatch on the back of his car and I was about to grab my circular saw when John ran up. You better not take those tools. In a flash, he was on my back, pulling me to the ground and swinging left and right. Somewhere along the way, I'd been told that if someone ever attacks you in public, make it obvious that you're the one being attacked and the police will know who to seize. So I started screaming, help, someone call the police, help, I'm being attacked. Sure enough, when the police showed, John was arrested. Grinning, I stood and watched as my brother was led away in handcuffs. Fix this, Hal, make this right, he screamed. I gave him the finger, returned to our apartment and cracked open a beer. When John phoned from jail to say I'd better get him out, I had one response. Have you had one of those delicious bologna sandwiches yet? And I slammed the phone down into its cradle. Having been to jail myself more than once, I was familiar with jailhouse cuisine. My stays in county lockup were nothing criminally glamorous, mind you. Warrants for unpaid traffic tickets. Lots of warrants. Not only was I a loser brother and roommate, I was a loser criminal too. When the phone rang again, it was our father. He was on his way to bail John out. How could you do this to your brother? He yelled. You got 24 hours to vacate that apartment, Hal. We are done with you. But my mother said to me, Hal, who are you? And honestly, I, I didn't have an answer because I... I wondered the same exact thing all the time. Years later, eventually facing hard time, prison, because I'd graduated from unpaid tickets to credit card fraud, mail fraud, and bank fraud, I sat one night in the dark, dumbfounded, wondering, how did I end up here? Nice Jewish boys don't go to prison. For whatever reason, at that very moment, I gave up and became willing to do 
what was necessary to live and stay sober. And I found a group of people who were willing to teach me how. I said that night what I now realize was my first real prayer to God. I simply said, God, if you're there, help. And I felt his presence in every cell of my being. God was there. It was like a tiny light had gone off in the darkness inside my soul that told me that there was a future. I had no idea what it was. I knew it was not going to look good for a long time, but it was also the first night I actually slept somewhat peacefully for as long as I could remember. And then the next day was my first day of sobriety. In those years that had passed, my brother had gotten married, and in time, my family came to see that I was serious about staying clean. As part of my sobriety, I needed to make amends to the people I had harmed, so I made a list. It was freaking long. But I started working my way through. When it came to my brother, I simply could not imagine a way to make things right. By never paying my share of anything, I'd stolen from him. Worse, because of me, he had a criminal record. The notion of simply telling him I was sorry seemed so lacking. So in my daily prayers, I added, God, I'm willing to make amends to my brother. I'm willing to make things right, if you'll show me how. Late that summer, a series of events took place I could not have predicted. My brother's marriage suddenly ended and he was living alone with his dog. My parents and other family were out of the country and my phone rang. It was John. I need to have surgery, he told me. I was wondering if you'd be willing to drive me to and from the hospital and stay with me while I recover. There it was, a path. Yes, I stammered. I'd be happy to do this. So two weeks later, with intense gratitude, I rose and picked up John before dawn. During surgery, I sat in the waiting room and I was the family member who the surgeon came out and told things had gone well. When I took him home, it was a hot summer day. As I helped him out of the car, I thought of just how different things were from that previous summer day and our story together. I once heard a Yom Kippur sermon where the rabbi compared guilt and shame to carrying around pockets full of stones. We bend, punch, and sway from the weight of it all, he said. It drags us down. I was reaching into my pockets and taking out rocks and pebbles by the handful. In the week that followed, I walked his dog, a lovable black lab mix named Nipsey, cooked his meals, cleaned, and did some laundry. There was a couch in his bedroom where I slept to give him meds when he woke in pain. To pass the time, we mostly watched television. For some reason, no matter what time it was or when I looked up at the TV, the show In the Heat of the Night was always on. 
Does this show have its own freaking channel? I asked, rising at 2 a.m. to give him meds. I love this show, John said, but don't make me laugh. It hurts. As the week drew to a close, though, I needed to sit down with John and formally make amends. It had to be direct and clear. Nervous. On the last night of my stay, I stepped outside to walk Nipsey and looked up at the night sky. I asked God to be with me, to help me say the right thing. Although it had been hot, a cool wind whispered through the trees and swept across my face, and I knew. I knew I wasn't alone. There's something I want to talk to you about, I told John when I came back in. When I was in the depths of my addiction, you allowed me to come live with you. You took me in and gave me shelter, and I did not appreciate that. In fact, I abused it endlessly. I look back on that day when you were arrested and and I shudder. It haunts me that I could do something so horrific to someone I love, to someone who's been nothing but generous. I know this week has only been an iota of time, but thank you for giving me this chance to show you that I'm not the person I was. By now, I was crying. I'm so sorry for what I did, I added. I was wrong. And if I could do things over, I'd do it all so differently. John looked at me a moment, tears in his eyes, and said, you just did. That was Hal Karp in Dallas, Texas. He's a writer and a storyteller. And you can find more of his work at oralfixationshow.com. Stephanie Butnick, what does this season of reckoning and repentance mean to you? Okay, here's the thing. I love that there's like a set up a set time in the Jewish calendar to think about like what we've done in the past year. I do this all the time. I leave a social situation and I replay the entire thing in my head. Did I say something stupid? Did I say something maybe offensive? Is this person mad at me? Is this person still mad at me? Like, this is an ongoing theme in my Every life. Day is I am anxious all the time. <laughs> so when this holiday comes around, I'm like, uh, I've, I've, I've already reckoned with every single p- potentially stupid thing I said and like have, you know, bat, you know, beaten myself, you know, whatever. Like, I, it's so funny to me that I'm like, oh, so now we all do this, this thing that torments me every day. <laughs> Welcome to my life. But the other thing it's, it's interesting is, you know, in the in the lead up to this episode, you sort of prompted us to think about apologies. And I'm actually such a non-confrontational person. I shrink. I shrivel from confrontation that actually. I don't find myself in I've, I've, I've patently like avoided situations that would require apologies or would require others to give me apologies because I just I just shrink from conflict. And so there's a way in which I don't have these, you know, like amazing stories about the, the time I I did something like I, I, I've done bad things and I know, but I like think about it every single day of my entire life. Like, I did something really shitty to my best friend in college. It has to do with sorority rush, so I'm not going to repeat the story because it doesn't sound as bad as it was. Like, it, Because what happens to sorority rush stays yeah, a sorority rush. It, but it was an awful thing, and I feel bad. And it was eight years ago, and I, I, I'm guilty about it almost every other day. Like, these things are just... <laughs> 
I and I've you know like okay you know I've obviously we we're past that and we're we're still great friends, but these things sort of weigh on me all year round, and so I find it difficult to be like honestly difficult for me with my my disposition to like have to be forced to think about this again. And maybe that makes me. What does that make me a bad Jew? I don't know. I it feel makes like you I, a great Jew. Have I just not displayed enough anxiety and neuroses to qualify for the Hall of Fame? You've internalized Diana. the idea that we always should be looking at our actions and thinking. And I mean, about like the beating, the chest beating at Yom Kippur. Like I'm all for that. I'm like I'm all in. <laughs> but it's. I think there's a way in which. I, I feel in my experience, like I do feel guilty all the time. I do feel have these feelings. So it is hard for me to then like to not get obsessive about this, like who who sh- like this, this sort of the somberness of Yom Kippur and of, and of the season and just this this really stark contrast of like, will you get into the book of life? Do you deserve it? And for someone who is like me, who is is an anxious person, that's like a really stri- that's not theoretical to me. That's right, although, like really freaking real. Although that's that's actually really interesting because. Honestly, Yom Kippur is not at all a somber holiday. I mean, it, th- there are kind of anxious. What about the who shall live, who shall die? Mainly, part? right? But you know, it's it's part of of a cycle of life. It's actually a day of great rejoicing because we are, uh, you know, uh, cleared of our of our sins, uh, if not by divine decree, then certainly by personal uh, interaction, and and we're celebrating. The beginning of, of a new year and at the end of the period of, of reflection, which for you lasts <laughs> three hundred and sixty five days. Unless it's a like uh, leap year. It's yeah, it's a celebration. It's it's a happy day because the work that you do while anxiety driving and mad maddening in in a way, it's also really freaking good for you. No? Do you not feel that? Do you not feel like lighter because you actually have the capacity to reflect and grow? That's true. I mean, I think what I would like to work on this year is like letting go of the thing I did 10 years ago that was bad and like actually forgiving myself for some of the like, I would like to feel that lightness. I would. And right, maybe... Tell yourself she's dead and nothing's going to bring her back. <laughs> the old Taylor can't come to the phone. She's dead. Because she's dead. So this was a good th- session. How much do I owe you guys? <laughs> okay, that's my bit. Mark Oppenheimer, right. I- I'm, I'm very curious to hear your take on this. And can I just st- start this by saying, Mark, you are someone who readily apologize like you you deal with things as they happen so i'm curious how like the taking inventory part of year works for you because you do sort of like neatly resolve things i think as you you have conflagrations but you sort of solve them right away yeah i mean that's nice to hear right i mean from from two people whom i have apologized to in the past i think i'm pretty good about apologizing in the moment um I think that it's usually with people whom I have a lot of love with and a lot of trust with. Like, I'm, I'm very good at maintaining those relationships. I think that we all have those people in our lives who um, we're kind of more loosely connected to or tethered to who sometimes drift off, right? Like the, the college friend who you plan to stay in touch with and maybe you do once or twice. There's no formal break. But then by six or eight months or a year and a half after college, you realize you've talked for the last time or... Um, the, you know, the, the encounter with someone in in the workplace who then before you have a chance to apologize because they, they work on a different floor or they have a different schedule, they've left and moved on to another company. And so these things, you know, it's not a close friendship that, that I feel, oh my God, like it's weighing on me that I haven't maintained it. It's somebody who was in my life. Maybe something ended in, in, maybe something ended in an icky or, or kind of angry way but not enough that I really leap on it. And once I let it go, once it's sort of a few months or a year in the past, then I'm real chicken shit about 
about getting in touch with the person. But Mark, you bring up an interesting point, which which is this. I mean, you actually also consider the role of the apology kind of in the arc of the friendship. I mean, ha- has there ever been a time for you or times for you in which you said in which you said, I can apologize to this person, but there's actually not going to be a relationship. So they probably don't want my apology. It's better to just move on. That's actually something I'm grappling with with a few people. And I think about them every Yom Kippur. There are like two or actually three people from my past who I just feel these are not people I wronged terribly in the grand scheme of things. Um, But I feel like I want to apologize, but I have to check myself because I also want to be friends with them again, and I'm kind of aware that they've moved on. And so I feel like the apology would be a kind of self-serving way to force them back into relationship with me because they kind of have to accept the apology or at least be nice about it. Um, And yet they don't really want to be in relationship with me. So maybe I should just let it lie. I mean, I'll I'll give you an example. Um, I had a friend whom I technically was roommates with when I was getting very involved with Sid, with with my wife. And I basically just like moved out on him because um, Sid had an apartment nearby and I was out of town a lot. I was about out of town about half the week. And then the two or three nights when I was in town, I was staying at Sid's apartment. And I basically just like left the apartment that I'd been living in with this friend. And he was a friend of some years standing. I mean, somebody I'd gone to school with for a number of years and, and had had some really wonderful times with. We'd had a couple road trips together. Um, But I just moved out on him and not officially. I mean, I still had my stuff there and there was no fight. We never, we never yelled at each other, but then I was just gone. And then at some point the lease expired and I was gone for good. And I just always felt like he might've actually been fairly devastated. (laughs) Like he might've really missed me and I've never worked, but, but he also might not have. And the friendship has, has ended and we haven't talked for 10 or 15 years. And it's like, do, do do I reach out and say something or is that just like pure narcissism? I don't know because and then it's like that was a long time ago. That was one marriage and five kids ago, right? Like so I, I'm curious how like time plays into this. Is it totally good to apologize for something old or is it just dredging? Has this guy like, oh, yeah, that, oh, yeah, he was an asshole. And then we then I moved and forgot about him. Like, is it is it selfish, right? To, At a certain point, demand. who am I kidding, right? And, you know, he and I'm also someone who lives in the past. I'm very nostalgic. I'm stuck in the past, so I am reliving it. Really, not not all the time, but at least once a month, I think about this and I think, oh, I should have done, I should have done better. I mean, if only for a few seconds, I think about it and I perseverate on it just because I'm so eager to be liked. So that's kind of that's my that's one of my Yom Kippur failings or sins that that I have to grapple with. crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. And now, a story from our producer and editor, Noah Levinson. It's the first week of May, earlier this year. Quayshon Stewart is sitting at home. He lives in Mount Vernon, New York, just outside of Yonkers. And he gets a concerned text from a friend. He was like, yo, bro, you all right? I'm like, yeah, what you mean? He was like, bro, your picture's all in the news. I'm like, you're bugging. What are you talking about? So he sends me the link, and I see it. And it had my picture from Facebook on it. It had my name and everything, and I was scared. So I started reading the post. I'm like, oh, shoot, what is this? It was the New York Post. Headline, man posts video ridiculing Hasidic children over haircuts. I started reading it and reading it now. Oh, what in the world is going on? Quay had made the video the day before. He'd been working for a company that made deliveries for Amazon, and he was delivering a package to an Orthodox home in Brooklyn when he came across a group of young Jewish boys. I haven't seen a kid like that in a while. Like, the hair, the locks, and everybody. I'm talking about little kids. Honestly, I don't I don't be around Jewish people as much to really sit there and be like, oh, wow, that's, well, that's normal. That's... I mean, it is normal because that's what they do. Like, that's how they, that's their tradition. But it's not normal for me if I don't see that every day. One of the little Jewish kids and another kid was sitting there trying to fight over, over like a bike or something. Little kid walks up to me upset, like he's walking past me. And that's when Quay starts taking the video. He's already got his phone out, looking for the delivery address. You don't see Quay in this 15-second clip. Just the kid. This cute, pale, confused-looking Hasidic boy with really short hair on the top of his head and long brown payas coming down from the sides. He doesn't appear to be much older than three. In the video, he's walking towards the camera. It looks like he's about to walk right past it, but then he stops when he realizes that the person holding the camera is actually talking to him. I'd be crying if I look like that too, bro. That's fucked up what they be doing to y'all. I ain't even gonna hold you, bro. I'd be saying that's fucked up like, bro, you probably had the full washing set. You should be fired probably if they ain't cut your shit. Fuck it though, bro. It's your life. The boy just looks up at Quay during this exchange. You can't really tell that he's upset, or anything, other than thoroughly confused. It's pretty hard to imagine that he understood what Quay was talking about, getting the full wash and set. I actually had to look that one up. After the video, according to Quay, the boy just walks off. All right, to be honest, when I seen the kid, I was just thinking, all right, what can I say that's honestly funny? Like, that's, like what can I say that, that, would, that other viewers would think was funny? I wasn't thinking on 
how would he feel about this? But, but like, when did you think even to like take out your phone? Like you saw, I guess you saw the haircut and that no, was- No, all right. So look, honestly, working over there, I would always be fascinated because I'm black. So being that I'm black and I never was around that many Jewish people, like never hung out with them. Like, I mean, I my babysitter, old babysitter, but that's not like- like, I'm not out there seeing a million Jewish people looking at me like, oh, well, he's the only one that's black walking through here. Anyway, Koi posts the video, and the reaction is totally not what he was expecting. Some people actually do think it's funny, but a lot don't. So I know for a fact there's still a percentage of people that are still like, oh, no, nah, this kid's, you're racist. You you do this, that, and the third. You don't, you're not, you're not a mensch. There's so many articles. But you, you posted, I posted it originally on Facebook. It went from Snapchat to Facebook. And then from Facebook, somebody put it on Twitter. I go to Twitter and I see 2.5 million views on it. I'm like, what? By the way, Quay isn't the only person becoming famous here. Even today, if you search Google for the term Hasidic boy, this little kid's bewildered face comes right up, looking at you from the screen, as if to ask, me? Quay admits that he didn't really feel guilty at first, even though he was starting to see a lot of negative comments and demands that Facebook take the video down, which they eventually did. It was still up on Twitter, gaining views every minute. He was mesmerized. At that moment, when I was going viral, all of that, uh, you should apologize, and I wasn't thinking about none of that. Not saying I shouldn't have, but I wasn't thinking about it because I was so focused on the numbers and so focused on how many people actually seen this video and will know my name. Like, it's like the internet is honestly an addiction, bro. But Quay's conscience eventually caught up with him when the video got one view too many. My grandmother from Florida sent me the news post. After my friend sent, sent it to me, she sent it to me out of nowhere. I would, this is the least person I least expected her to send that to me. Like, you're all the way in Florida. She was just really upset and wanted me to fix that. Like, literally upset. And I never had my grandmother upset with me like that. And when this happened, I didn't know how to um, make up for this video. I didn't know how to, like, fix it, fix the issue. So Quay makes another video in his car outside his home. This time, he has the camera pointed at himself. I recently posted online a video of me coming at a little kid in regards to his haircut. Off rip, I just want to sincerely apologize to that young boy and his family. I'm sorry. Like, I'm truly sorry. Like, I think about it every day now. Like, that was really, like, I've, if it was my little brother, you're right. I don't want this to be like a race thing. I have nothing against Jewish people. I have friends that are Jewish. My babysitter growing up was Jewish. It's nothing. Like, I have nothing against Jewish people. Trust me. They done been through too much. Too much. We've been through as much as they've been through. They've been through worse. I don't have no issues with Jewish people. But right there, that was just me being real immature. And it's making me seem like a person that I'm not. Like, I'm really not that type of person. I'm not disrespectful. I'm really not. I'm a community guy. That right there just made me look and feel like a whole nother person, but after the fact. And it's my fault that I didn't think about this while I was doing it, before I even did it. That right there is a form of bullying. I'm not a bully. I would never bully anybody. I can't say never because that right there was a form of it. And I'm truly sorry for that. That right there, I, I cannot take that back. I can't. It goes on like this for another full minute. At one point, it honestly looks like he's about to cry. Oh, my. I can't even speak right now. That's how upset I am. But I, I just want to really let the world know, like, that right there was one big old mistake. It was a big mistake. Overnight, Quay basically goes from internet villain to honorary NJB. 
from cursed be Haman to blessed be Mordechai. I've never seen anything like it. The new video gets thousands of responses from Jewish Twitter, almost all of them telling him he's good. It's all forgiven. The word mensch is thrown around. A lot. So now that I apologize and Twitter, I'm telling you, Twitter, they support me a lot. That's crazy. I didn't know it. And all my supporters on Twitter are honestly Jewish. So it's like all because of this. I actually read in, um, I think it was in the Jewish Daily Forward mm-hmm. that you like went around the streets of Brooklyn. In the beginning, when I first did the video, I forgot about it. When I first did the video, um, I just started stopping random Jewish people. Like I, I stopped two people, honestly. The second guy actually recognized my face. And I randomly walked up to the guy and I was just asking him if one if one was to disrespect like the Jewish, the whole Jewish community, how does he, uh, like how, do, how does someone fix that? And he looked at me and he was just like, are you the one that posted that video? And I'm like, yeah. And he was just like, wow. Like, I just want to say you're good, bro. That apology was perfect. You don't need to do nothing else. And that shocked me right then and there. Like literally this man just randomly knows exactly who I am. I have to say, the whole trajectory of this story really surprised me. It's not that I didn't think Quay deserved forgiveness for what he did. I was just taken aback to see him actually get it. It's a truism that the culture of the internet is to be really unforgiving. That you can never live anything down online. Someone's just always waiting to take the dumbest thing you've ever said or done and throw it back in your face. I can't really think of any other stories that play out like this. Where someone pisses the whole internet off, and then by the end of the week, they're a hero. Then it strikes me. Perhaps the internet isn't actually unforgiving. Maybe it just seems that way because it's so unapologetic. We're so used to watching people in the public sphere squirm their way out of properly apologizing, saying they're sorry if their actions hurt people, or burying their regret in a press release on their website so that nobody ever really sees them in a remorseful posture, but they can still be on the record as having apologized. That one drives me crazy. This video of Quay sitting there in his car, choked up, admitting that he made a mistake. It's so simple, but it really moved a lot of people. It's been about four months since all this happened, and Quay still gets a decent amount of attention for what he keeps referring to as this whole Jewish thing. At one point, he shows me his phone, looking through his various inboxes on social media. He still gets press inquiries and private messages about it. As he's scrolling, something new pops up. You're the dude that recorded The Hazardic Boy and it went viral, right? I want to ask for permission to maybe use your line as a tag for my beats. Uh, send some... <laughs> yeah, so it's like I'm getting all of that. Wait, like, he, wants, he wants to... The line from the original video? Yeah, I don't he know which line, though. Beat. You want to open it? Um, yeah, let me click this one. I don't know if this is a beat. Maybe. Or you think maybe your voice is about to come on over it. Is that the end? You have to keep playing it. That was the beginning. <laughs> okay, so you, you didn't say yes or no to him yet? No. What are you going to say? I'm, I'm going to let him do it. Okay. Is there part of you that feels like... <laughs> I can't believe this. But I mean, is there part of you that feels like, hang on, I made this video. I told everyone I was sorry that I right. made it. Maybe I shouldn't. Allow embrace it, it. Uh, should, yeah I shouldn't embrace it I might 
You think about it. You let me know. I'll think about it. Let me know what you decide. Because it's not really doing nothing to me. Like, it doesn't affect me. I don't mind saying no. No, the reason to say no would be like, oh, man, I regret this video. Right, right. Just to let them know, like, bro, you. I I don't want this to go any further. Right. That's embracing it if I told them, yeah. But I don't, I think it's just a random person. I don't even know who this is, but. He's not really using the, the, the line that people would take issue with. Like, he's just, he just says, fuck it, bro. It's your life. Yeah. Which Which is actually a pretty good rap hook. See, you're not making it any better. You're making me want to say yeah and say no. Okay, well, it's your decision. It's not mine. (laughs) I think Quay enjoys some of the attention. After all, that's why he posted the video in the first place. He thinks of himself as an entertainer. He wants to be a comedian. But he also wishes he could move on from this one thing he's known for. Even though he said yes to the interview, he tells me he really doesn't like doing this stuff. Like podcasts? Interviews? I don't really like doing them. Like, I like doing them. I just don't like doing them for this topic. Because me personally, I want to really, like, what I want to be in life, yeah. what I want to do, I feel like if I keep talking about this, it's just going to hold me back. Hmm. And I want to be something, like, I really want to be an entertainer. Like, if you've seen my social media and yeah. really understood, like, this is just, like, holding me back personally, I feel like. Quay keeps scrolling through his phone. This video on somebody else's page with two million views right now. Wow. How does that make you feel? I don't care. I just it's just the point that people still yeah I took it off my page, but it, I don't I really don't understand that. I just don't. I know it's a bit pedantic, but Quay's never sat through a Yom Kippur service before, and so I can't resist telling him the old story about the gossiper and the feather pillow. This is one of the few things that stuck with me from Hebrew school, actually. Um, it's some story about a rumor. Somebody spreads a lie or something, or a rumor about someone. And everybody learns about it. And this guy, like, is really embarrassed who the rumor's about. I'm probably telling the story pretty bad. Anyway, the man who spread the rumor suddenly feels terribly guilty. And so he goes to the rabbi to ask him what to do. The rabbi instructs the man to meet him at the top of the hill with a feather pillow from his home. When they get there, the rabbi tears the pillow open and the feathers go in all directions. The rabbi then tells the gossip that if he wants to undo his actions, he should go pick up every single one of those feathers and stuff it back into the pillow. And like, the lesson is like, you can't. Once he'd put it out into the world, like, it's like a million feathers flying in the wind. You can't control where it goes after that. True. I see what you mean. Funny thing is, something very similar already happened to Quay just last year. He was out on the street taking videos, in this case, of a homeless woman in his neighborhood named Rachel, just messing with her. Like, he'd take out five bucks and then yank it back when she'd go to reach for it. So mean. Then it caught on as a trend. Everybody started doing what I was doing. Like, I started recording her, joking on her, when they seen her, like, literally everybody. To the point where this lady, I remember it was a day this lady told me she hates me. She like, because of you, everybody keeps doing this to me. Everybody keeps recording me. Local news caught wind that Quay was making these videos and dragged him for it. And all of that negative attention inspired Quay to make a change. So I switched it, stopped messing with her, like literally started taking care of her. Like I used to work at the casino, I'd bring her food, bring her clothes. Like to this day, this lady will call my phone. And from there, Quay just started getting more and more involved in feeding the homeless. At one point, he raised over $1,000 on GoFundMe so that he could make a bunch of bagged lunches and hand them out to homeless people around the community. Says he's done this about 15 or 20 times. A few months ago, he received a public service award from the Yonkers African American Heritage Committee. But it's not even about that, honestly. It's just about how many faces I can actually feed at one time. If you're hungry, you should eat. Everybody deserves a plate. If I have it, I'm going to give it to you. There's a lot of homeless people in Yonkers. 
seen people for years. So it's like, damn. Like, we're used to that. We're used to seeing homeless people. All right, he's good. He be all right. Nah, it don't work like that. Like, people fail to realize, like, they're homeless. Look what you just said, homeless. Imagine if you was homeless. Why? Here's how I feel about Quay. I don't think his judgment is accurate. At least, not about things like social media and what's offensive and what's not. I have to say, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets into trouble a third time for some dumb, mean video he posts online. But I do think people can learn judgment over time, and they generally do. To my mind, the greater virtue is humility, which Quay has more of than most people I know. If he ever does step in it again with something like this, I bet he makes up for it, and then some. He just seems like that kind of guy. I asked Quay if he felt he was square with the Jewish community after all this, and he said not at all. He's volunteered a couple of times at the Mosbia Soup Kitchen, a kosher food pantry in Brooklyn, but he knows he could do it more often. He's also had the opportunity to play Shabbos Goy a couple of times, and he wants to do it again. Because I know when it comes to Jewish people, certain days that they can't do certain things, like they can't touch certain things, they can't interact, none of that. So, but they have people that can do it for them. Like, and I was, I didn't know what it's called and none of that, so I was like, yeah. Shabbos Goy. That's what I'm saying. So I was like, yo, I'm trying to be one of those for y'all because I, like, I really want to show y'all. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, if y'all have any of those days, y'all need me to come in and turn on the stove, and <laughs> you know, I like, I got you. I'd just be trying to clean everything up now. Koi's never been able to find the kid from the video so that he could say he's sorry in person. Someone at Mosbia offered to look into it for him, but they never had any success. I'm still holding out hope that someone who listens to this show actually does recognize the kid and knows his family. And if you do, please reach out to us. Quay is a special type of person. He's ready to apologize. Right, we know that you are all jonesing for the credits, but before we get to them, one little extra special holiday treat. For a long time, we've been aching to team up with Sarah Lefton, the creative genius behind BimBomb.com, which has those amazing short little funny Torah videos that my kids love. And we thought, what better chance to bring her onto Unorthodox than to invite her to do a little infotainment infomercial about that random holiday that happens between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Many of you didn't even know it existed, but it did. It's called Some Gedalia. It happened on Wednesday, and we hoped to tell you about it before it happened, but we didn't, and for that, we apologize. Anyway, have a listen. Some Gedalia is a minor fast on the Jewish calendar you may never have heard of. Minor? Because it's dawn to dusk, not a full 24 hours. You know, minor. 
If you've always dreamt of fasting on Yom Kippur, but thought, dang, that sounds hard, you could think of this as a starter fast. Tzom Gedalia comes three days after Rosh Hashanah. It commemorates this political incident way back in 586 BCE. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple and exiles most of the important Jews. Only a few regular Jews hang out in the Holy Land after that. There's a governor named Gedalia who's wonderful but not very politically savvy. Things were going along fine, or so it seemed, but then this jealous rival rises up and kills him. Now here's the thing. Gedalia was warned about this assassination attempt, and he ignored the warning. Maybe he was generous. Maybe he was naive. You decide. It's all written up in the book of Jeremiah. After the assassination, everything goes to crap. The Jews scatter, and that's the end of Jewish autonomy in the land of Israel for 2,000 years. Sad. So why commemorate all this right after the new year in the holiday season? Some people say because it's a chance to focus on how our actions contribute to the community's health and, you know, community infighting. So what do you do on Som Gedalia? You say special prayers called slichot that are about saying sorry in the morning. You hear a Torah reading about God forgiving the people for the sin of the golden calf, and you fast. But here's the good news about fasting. In the book of Zechariah, it says that in the days to come, when the Moshiach comes, all the fast days will be turned to days of joy and feasting. So it's like fast now, party later. For more Jewish learning on holidays you've heard of and those you haven't, visit bimbam.com, B-I-M-B-A-M.com. Instead of mazel tovs, I think that we should talk about some apologies that we think need to be made in the year to come. And I will go first. I will go first. Uh, a couple things. First of all, um, there's there's something I'm sitting on, right? It's not something I have to apologize for. But I have this friend who, in a private email spat, called me an asshole. And, you know, I've been called an asshole before, but it was kind of like she, kind of like she meant it. She wasn't kidding. And she didn't think anything of it. And, and again, in her mind, it was probably a minor spat. But I I have I have really sat on it. It has sat with me because it seemed a moment of cruelty in a conversation that I thought was kind of – that I had hoped was lighthearted. And I don't think she realized how much it cut me because I felt like I would never use that language toward her. Um, and I just need to reach out to her and tell her that my feelings were really hurt. And then, and then she can do with it what she will. Um, but I'm mad at her and I don't want to be mad at her. And I think part of, part of this season is getting over those things ourselves and doing the work to get over them. So I need to bring it up with her. And I think we Jews need to apologize to all the people whom we made feel unwelcome in our communities. Um, this could be converts whose conversion status we've crudely and tactlessly pointed out, um, or people who we've uh, doubted are Jews because they don't look like we think Jews are supposed to, or Jews whom we've simply forgotten because they're invisible, um, because they're housebound or elderly, um, or just um, are depressed and not getting out of bed. And, and really, those are the moments when we should be saying, hey, where is so-and-so? I haven't seen her or him around lately. And we don't. We just forget about them because we remember the people who show up for, for shul or for the parties or for the, you know, for the hockey game or whatever. And there are a lot of people who, who aren't showing up, but they might be the ones who need us the most. So I think we, we owe all of them an apology. And uh, let's try to do better in 5779. Liel? I'm basically just going to say amen to everything you just said. I think really the greatest, biggest, most meaningful apology we could offer it's just to everyone that we've made feel unwelcome, whether it's because of, you know, political conflagrations, if it's because of, you know, religious inflammations, for whatever reason that made any of us uh, make anyone else feel anything but absolutely 100% warmly welcome as if they truly belong in this great big Jewish party of ours. Apologies, and we will do better. 
amen to your amen. Stephanie Butnick? So we talked a little bit about public apologies and sort of 2018 as like, you know, the year of of people doing, you know, being outed as, as doing, having done really horrific things. Um, I want to say that one thing we never got was actually an apology from Harvey Weinstein. He issued statements and there's, you know, there's a link on like, what is this? There's a link on USA Today that says, Harvey Weinstein, read his full apology. And you like control F it and there's no word apologize. There's no word sorry. And it's like, oh, that's actually not an apology. So I think that there's a way in which I'm, I'm sick of these public statements that like don't have those words in it. And not that that makes anything better, but I feel like it shows just like a reckoning. And I want I want that. Harvey, if you're listening in jail... Yeah, if they you let you stream in there. Mark, I'm actually going to triple down on what you said. We get a lot of flack for being Ashkenormative, and it is funny, right? Like we are, you know, we sort of play it up a little bit and being very New York-centric, blah, blah, blah. Like I think we do need to recognize that not all Jews look the same and not all Jews are people who came from Eastern Europe. And I think we need to just do a better job of being more welcoming to and Jews not, of color. And not all of us live in New York City yeah. or LA or Chicago. And like this idea, like I know we are sort of perpetuating it, but like I think that that saying someone you don't look Jewish, like let's not let's not say that at all this year. Instead of just apologizing, we're gonna we're gonna show how we're gonna change, and you're not gonna question someone who's who's at temple. We're gonna right? open our minds and we're gonna open our hearts. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and share us with your friends. Who do you know who would appreciate our reflections on Yom Kippur? What Facebook group are you in that cares about atonement or Judaism or just being good people? So share this episode, help us get the word out, and make sure you subscribe to the show. We don't want you to ever miss an episode. A lot of our best apology stories come to us from you when we get your letters and your voicemails after our apology episode. So if you have anything to share with us, if you have feelings about our episode, or if you think you might have a story for us for coming years, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call and leave us a message at 914-570-4869. Please indicate if you'd be okay with us playing it on the air. We read every letter and listen to every message. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Get our newsletter by asking for it at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. To book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. And if you want to wear or carry or sport unorthodox, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt to order our swag. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnick. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Talushkin, and Noah Levin who is also our editor. Editing assistance by Sophia Steinert-Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme, newly freshened up, as you've heard, is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision is by Cantor Shira Ginsburg, who about one year ago at this time was officiating at the wedding of Stephanie Butnick and Benjamin Cohen. We recorded Argo Studios without apology, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends.